Welcome to Risk Roundup. While the advances in science and technology has given us information, communication, and digitization technologies, along with powerful search engines, social networks, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, virtual reality, drones, autonomous cars, 3D printing, quantum computing, and so much more that transforms not only cyberspace, but also geospace and space. It has also brought us a whole new world where the most successful criminals are those that can hide behind the anonymity that the cyberspace offers and individuals and entities across nations, its governments, industries, organizations, and academia are far more likely to be victimized in cyberspace than in geospace. Now, since each of these existing and emerging technology has a different set of qualities than the connected computers and internet, individually and collectively, there is complex and diverse legal and policy issues. So how can nations keep up? How can nations individually and collectively respond to the complex legal challenges of cyber crimes, cyber technologies, and cyberspace? To discuss complex legal and policy challenges of cyberspace and cyber crimes and cyber technologies further, I am delighted to welcome Professor Pauline C. C. Reich to Risk Roundup. Professor Reich is the founder of Asia Pacific Cyber Law, Cyber Crime, and Internet Security Risk Research Institute based in Tokyo. She's also the general editor of Cybercrime and Security, published by Thomson Writers. Welcome, Professor Reich. We are on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Wonderful. So let's begin the discussion by transformative technology and its impact on current laws. Cyberspace is growing at an enormous pace and is becoming the new preferred ecosystem for the digital inhabitation of individuals and entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. Understandably, it is creating complex legal and policy challenges that has far-reaching consequences. What complex challenges do you see emerging because of cyberspace? Well, the, I think that one primary problem is definitions. And I published a book in 2012 with Dr. Eduardo Gelbstein, who was uh, one of the information security leaders in the United Nations. I had met him through the World Summit for the Internet Society. And one chapter that I wrote for our book, Law, Policy, and Technology, was entitled To Define or Not to Define. The issue of definition is very important in law. So a judge will look to the law and say, well, this is not in the definition under our law, and we have no law to apply, or this is defined as so-and-so. So there, there haven't, the problem with the word cybersecurity is in a number of years before I wrote that book uh, chapter, the, the Russians and the Americans sat down and they tried to look for common definitions and vocabulary. They were brought together by a group, um, an organization called the East West Institute. And they couldn't even agree on the word cyber because they didn't have it in their vocabulary. And cyberspace, huh? So they, 
you know, we when when somebody says cybersecurity to me, my antenna go up and I say, well, are you talking to me about the tech aspect or it, does it encompass cybercrime, which I do work with? But now there's also cybersecurity law and cybersecurity policy. And it's such a, a, a poorly defined, these are poorly defined terms. So we need to have an agreed upon um, lexicon or glossary to work from, and there isn't one. So yes. this is where we are. So if you say cybersecurity and I say cybersecurity, since my fields are law and policy to do with internet and, and technology, I may mean something entirely different, and then we have to spend a half an hour defining. Now, I did this when I worked on a book with two Japanese judges, and we had to define terms in English and see if the Japanese definition was similar. So lawyers and judges and, and, and people in legal and policy areas really need the definitions and need clarity. So that's a big problem. Yes, it and is those... a problem and you you are absolutely right about it because if you talk about, if you ask a lot of people in uh, tech, you you ask, the, you tell them cybersecurity, they would think it's information security. A lot exactly. of people think that cybersecurity is information security, but it is not. You and I both know that it's a very broad term and it encompasses so many things. It is network, it includes network security, information security, data security, as well as all these emerging technologies that are coming from, from cyberspace. How those technologies are impacting the current you know, models, the current systems, the current business model, governance models, and uh, uh, management models, how it changes the way we do things. All this is a part of cybersecurity. And but we have to we have to be on the same page, so to speak. Yes. So if you if you're talking in the context of one area, and I'm talking in in the context of another area, we're not on the same page. And and when this comes to national security types of cybersecurity and two nations talking to each other, it's it's very, very difficult. Yes, there's but, also there's so how would you let me inter interfere? Yeah. How do you define cybersecurity? I refuse to <laughs> <laughs> No, I I become very specific, and within the the broad area of cybersecurity, as you said, there's information security, and I would say cybercrime is subsumed in the broader area. Um, it, so it depends on what field you're coming from. Now, what concerns me is the need for interdisciplinary dialogues among law, policy, and technology communities. So the 2012 book had that definition. And we had divided the book. The first part was um, people who were computer science people. And they were led by Ed Gelbstein, who was a, a PhD in computer science. The second part was law and policy people. And I led that team. So we, we didn't exactly... Uh, collaborate, but we we harmonized. 
the the trend I've been seeing recently, I've seen a couple of trends. One is in academe, they're in silos. So the tech people don't meet with the law people and don't integrate the law and policy into the tech field. Now there's someone in New Zealand who is a computer science PhD who is uh, heading a graduate program in cybersecurity and he, they have a master's um, thesis requirement in which the student must write a thesis on a cybercrime topic. So it's that's a very good example of, a, of an interdisciplinary dialogue between law and tech, led by a tech person, but inclusive of law people. And I think it's, it's an excellent model. Now, in the United States, we also have interdisciplinary models, but then we may have models that are solely tech, and they are called cybersecurity, and they're they're taught by computer scientists or tech people, and they don't necessarily treat the legal issues that later wind up in court when police investigations uh, are challenged by the privacy community. Yes. So we need to dialogue, and I'm very concerned about the lack of collaboration among the disciplines. Another trend is smart cities. Yes. And we we don't know if people will have privacy if the tech people are talking in isolation to other tech people and the law is not integrated. So these are some of the issues of collaboration that I think are really important. You're absolutely right, because uh, the silo problem is not just for the cybersecurity industry, it is for each and every industry or each and every you know critical security risk that we are seeing across nation they all you know emerge from the fact that everything is being done in silo and people are focusing only on their independent risks that are you know impacting them and the interconnectedness and interdependencies that are a part of so many critical risks that are emerging and coming our way that is not addressed so it is a big problem and uh, cyber security is uh, like you said, you know, there is a need for collaboration, cooperation, and uh, the, that is one of the reasons why we launch Risk Roundup, so we can invite decision makers from across NGIA, from across disciplines, across sectors, and we have that collective dialogue, and we create that collective intelligence so that we can address the complex challenges that are coming our way, just like, you know, we are doing now. So having said that, when it comes to technology transformation in geospace, while contracts and transactions and the records in many ways are defining legal structures and systems, cyberspace is also evolving so much faster than the law's ability to handle the transformative changes brought on by the technology and its associated security challenges. So in your perspective, what does the introduction of any new transformative technology in cyberspace mean for cybersecurity, cyber law and policy? Well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, one of the problems that I also see is that people who write legislation may not be that knowledgeable of the tech area. And the majority of people aren't. 
uh, people in some countries don't have any training and they're expected to draft law. Uh, judges may not have training. In, in my area of law, it, judges may not have training. And I'm concerned about who do we trust if we are non-techies and we're barraged with a lot of commercial hype. So we get solicitations from companies that say, we can handle all of your cybersecurity problems for your corporation or, or your organization. And the non-tech world doesn't know who to trust. And the some of many of the commercial companies are promoting for financial gain, but they may not be the best product. So one thing I'd love to see is something like a consumer reports for cybersecurity to guide the non-tech people to set up a kind of checklist. For example, when you go to buy a new car, you might go to consumer reports and compare different models. I'd love to see an objective standard of some kind that would enable the, the non-techies of the world to evaluate either for their corporation or their university or their government or for individuals to evaluate the products that are, are being hyped. And I'm saying hyped because there's so much hype and we really need an objective standard or some outside body that can help us. Yes, absolutely. I th I hear your uh, concern and point, and I think you are right about it, that there is a need for that kind of uh, standards and that kind of education and awareness model that would help most uh, the majority of the population across nations because the computer literacy, cyber literacy, uh, cybersecurity literacy is not common and not everyone has a technological depth or understanding of how to evaluate a lot of things and how to uh, handle a lot of things, how to operate computers, how to, and especially this is a big concern because of the cryptocurrencies that are you know, emerging and all the wallets. They, it looks like that where we are going is that uh, if, if the cryptocurrencies are accepted, as you know, people are hoping that it would be, then you know, every each individual will become its own bank. And if uh, everyone is their own bank, and if they don't have the basic understanding of computer security or cyber security or network security, then it's going to be bringing you know many complex challenges over web and people will be losing all of their life savings because the thieves would have you know very easy time you know to uh, get all, all the you know money from people's wallets because the security aspects and understanding and awareness is just not there so what you are suggesting is absolutely timely and i hope that not only the computer makers but the application makers and you know everyone who who is a part of this uh, computer ecosystem that they all get together, collaborate and come up with the standards to help the you know, common man across nations. Now, there is a growing debate about yes. the future. There is a I, was, I was going to jump in and say, oh, please. consumer protection is another area that lawyers uh, get involved in. And the Federal Trade Commission in the United States was fortunate to have some very good tech people uh, working there 
uh, and uh, well, one is now back at Carnegie Mellon, but it, we need to protect consumers who do get cheated. Now, as far as cryptocurrencies, I, I, I've reviewed what countries around Asia were doing about uh, legalization of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I, I did the review last summer. And some countries have prohibited cryptocurrencies because their, their citizens aren't that um, aware of what they're getting into. Now, I hear people here in Tokyo, Japan has jumped onto the cryptocurrency bandwagon and said it's legal, but I see them pulling back a bit now. There have probably been people who've lost their shirts because they didn't know what they were getting into. Young people might say, hey, this is cool. Let me invest money. I'm going to be a billionaire. I won't have to work. And then they lose money. I've heard them come to press conferences uh, about something that hap happened here with one of the uh, Bitcoin exchanges a couple of years ago where um, uh, someone went to jail, it was hacked, uh, etc. Um, so I think there's still room for debate. I don't think cryptocurrencies are that safe and governments in some cases have the central bank running its own cryptocurrency. I believe China is doing that rather than exposing people to unregulated uh, speculative kinds of deals. But I still hear people um, telling me uh, I've made a lot of money through Bitcoin and um, I, I, we don't need that kind of regulation and um, blockchain is, is very good. Now, blockchain is coming over to the cybersecurity area, blockchain alone without the currency aspect, but blockchain is now being considered um, a good measure for security. So we can we can maybe um, be more cautious. I think we should be more cautious in consumer protection of people who don't know what they're doing, and we may need to have um, uh, more, um, not education, but maybe more regulation. Another area where people think technology is cool, but don't know what they're doing is use of Wi-Fi. Mm. And people will go out to a public place and think they're secure because they don't know the security aspects of Wi-Fi. They, they use their, their mobile phones everywhere and they don't realize, uh, you know, you're using your, your credit card via Wi-Fi. Well, you could get hacked. Yes. So we need more public awareness in general. And then we need to have deeper um, training for the cybersecurity people who work in our countries but there aren't enough. There's a shortage worldwide of trained cybersecurity experts. No country has enough people. So we, we need to have some basic skills and we need to be aware that it's cool, it's efficient, 
but you need to know what we call the dark side. Yes, very true. Know that we do need a, a, a very uh, structured training programs for not only the kids in elementary school, but also the senior citizens. I mean, yes. each and every, you know, uh, generation needs uh, this kind of training because this digitalization and digital global age is uh, here to stay and you know without having that understanding education and awareness about the security aspect uh, a common man will lose so much more and uh, that is a big concern now as we we just talked about the uh, cryptocurrency and you we talked about the blockchain but there is also this growing debate about the nature of the influence of information communication and so many other technologies like artificial intelligence or quantum computing or virtual reality or CRISPR technology that, you know, when we evaluate this, how do you see these emerging technologies shaping the legal and policy framework in not only United States, but also Japan where you stay and, you know, across every other nation? Yes. Well, technology is changing constantly. Today's internet may be totally different within five years from now due to something like quantum computing, for example. Change is so constant. Um, Indian IT people, because <laughs> I go to India quite a bit too, uh, Indian IT people uh, whom I interviewed in, in September 2017, told me that their jobs are changing and disappearing. And they may not know the next round of technology. And these are young people with young families, and they're worried about what's happening next. Developed or more developed countries are in different stages, too. We can't compare the United States and Israel with Cambodia and Laos, for example. Yes, I'm based in Japan, therefore I look at Japan. But the, the countries around this region are in very different stages of adoption of legislation to protect people using the technologies. The Philippines is one country that's that's been pretty good about adopting law. And they have a sophisticated uh, public. So when they adopted a cybercrime law a few years ago, they were ch there was a constitutional challenge and it held up the adoption of the law for several years because people felt there was a violation of the constitution. Now, you may not have a well-developed constitutional um, uh, um, uh, background in some countries. Uh, I've been with Laos at the Council of Europe cybercrime meeting in Strasbourg, and they're new to this. I've been with Myanmar, been with Cambodia, and there some country and Vietnam. I, some countries are whizzing along. Thailand certainly is, is, has adopted a lot of technology and business, but they need to adopt more law too. And that law may be very different from the law in other countries, in, in democracies around uh, this region and worldwide. 
Yes, uh, Yeah, huge amounts of investment are needed to create new kinds of cybersecurity software. And we must engage in constant research. And the question is, who's going to fund it? Governments may not be willing to fund it. And yet there may be companies that are, are very um, uh, making a lot of money that could be providing research funding and are not. Yes, I mean, that is a very uh, fair point that you made, and that is a cause of concern that without proper and effective uh, funding, how will nations protect its citizens effectively? Because uh, we see that these issues involving intellectual property rights and privacy and cyber victimization or fraud and deception, it's not like it's happening only once, uh, you know, every every other year. It's happening almost every day. So Constant. That is a big concern that how to protect citizens. So how do we protect citizens? How should not, uh, nations protect citizens? Well, on May 20th this year, there was an article in my hometown paper, the New York Times, entitled, Banks Adopt Military-Style Tactics to Fight Cybercrime yes. because the loss to financial institutions and economies is huge and it's projected to be even greater. So I, I brought along some statistics today that I thought would um, uh, support what you just said. Um, the February 2018 Accenture and Ponemon Institute report, the cost of cybercrime study, indicates that cyber attacks cost financial services firms more to address than any other industry. And the rate of breaches has tripled over the past five years. The costliest types of attacks for banks and insurers are denial of services, phishing, social engineering, and malicious insiders. That is people working within your organization who may uh, commit cyber crimes. And we've seen quite a bit of that. Uh, the same report indicated that the average cost of cybercrime for financial services companies globally has increased by over 40% over the past three years, from $12.07 million per firm in 2014 to $18.28 million in 2017 significantly higher than any cost um, for other types of uh, cybercrime. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, than other, other costs. Um, uh, I'm gonna have to say that again, sorry. Uh, the same report indicated that the average cost of cybercrime for financial services companies globally has increased by over 40% over the past three years from $12.07 million per firm in 2014 to $18.28 million in 2017. That's significantly higher than the average cost of $11.7 million per firm across all industries in, that they studied. 
So yes. financial institutions, we know, have always been affected very much by cybercrime. And true, but the see, the financial institutions have a lot of funding, a lot of resources to, you know, divert the uh, towards security. But what about other industries? What about small businesses? What about individuals? That's where we have a big exactly. Problem. Exactly. I think the sector of small and mid-sized businesses really needs help because they can't afford to have the in-house staff or to hire the big consulting firms and they're vulnerable. Law firms could also be in the same situation if they're not the major law firms. They may not have the in-house staff. They may not be able to pay for the consulting firms. And as for individuals, again, People have come to me and said, my students have asked me at the beginning of uh, my cybercrime and cybersecurity classes, they've said, Sensei, what, what kind of security software should I have on my computer, my home computer, or the device that I'm using? And they that's the first question. And Again, we need this consumer reports, maybe for each country, because there's different software available. There are different companies that market their software in the different countries around the world. Very true, very true. And then another big issue that needs to be addressed is how effective are these, you know, softwares to provide security. That is also a big, you know, uh, concern that uh, do they do what they can uh, communicate to the consumers that they are doing, like providing security, like all these antivirus softwares, uh, how much security does it provide? So well, that, you know, no, big challenge. nobody is 100% perfect. Why? The bad people have lots of money. It's a big industry because they make an awful lot of money from cybercrime. One statistic, uh, I believe it was from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, February 2018 report, I think it was February, uh, said that cybercrime amounted to $600 billion last year. And in other years, they've said that cybercrime produces more income than drug trafficking worldwide. It's more serious. So the bad guys have, and I don't know how many women are in the field, but I don't know anyone who's, who's doing this. But the bad guys have lots of money. And the good guys, and, you know, I'm on the good guy side. When I look at the police, uh, I did training for the Interpol Cybercrime Division in Singapore in September. And the police from developing countries in ASEAN came to the program and said, we need new technology. We need training. And, and the government's cannot or won't pay for their training. I was in India about five or six years ago. A number of police stations in Goa. Why? I was hacked. And I met with the uh, police detective and the superintendent of police in Goa. And that was really interesting. They barely had a computer in the police station. 
Now, the Indians are complaining to me that the police have training available and don't want to go. And my answer is, well, if you create an elite group within the police, within a country, and you pay them well and honor them in some way, make them an elite group, they may be more motivated uh, to acquire the latest uh, knowledge and training. Yes, very true. There is uh, necessary across nations, not just yes. in India, but in each and every country this is yes. required. Because uh, without uh, that digital expertise or security expertise, there are no crimes that could be probably solved in the coming years, not only today, but also in the coming tomorrow. People will, uh, these detectives or policies, they won't be able to solve much of the crimes without having that expertise. So that is very necessary. Now, let's talk about robotics because it's shaping to be the next transformative technology of our time and is going to blur the line between the man and machine and is uh, already has started raising very complex challenges for law and policy. Do you think that... Uh, courts are capable today to manage the uh, complex challenges uh, the robotics is bringing to law? Well, there, there are pros and cons. Just like there are pros and cons to cryptocurrency, there are pros and cons to what robots can do for human beings. When I looked at the courts and, and I was asked to look at uh, ro robots uh, in terms of robot judges and robot juries recently. And I think that the robotics could be very, very helpful where there are huge caseloads and very routines, routine kinds of cases. I, would think, I was thinking traffic violations could possibly be dealt with because they're pretty routine. But then again, when you get to some precedent-setting case in the United States, which you might, the, I don't know that the robot can be programmed enough to, uh, to evaluate a more complex case, whether it's parking violations or I was thinking of immigration because historically immigration um, uh, law has been something that a paralegal could do because it's pretty routine, but today's immigration case may be much more complex, requiring a lot of human uh, testimony. And then, then there are ethics issues, and I don't know, I don't think a robot can be programmed to do the ethical evaluation that a human judge is called upon to do. And so there, there, you might be able to use the um, the robotic judge for very routine kinds of things. I, I think of small claims cases where uh, you know it's 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 handled in a one hour session usually by a human being. So it's not awfully complex. There are patterns to small claims cases, I think. But then again, the human being has to be involved, has to program the robot, and also I think has to keep um, some uh, involvement 
in the quality control, let's say, or the the looking at the ethics issues. Yes. Yes. As far as as far as the robot jury, again, when it comes to human decision making compared to robotic decision making, uh, I I don't I'm, I, I don't know. I haven't seen any prototypes yet. And there, there are some who propose the robot juries. I do think that the robots can do repetitive research if they're programmed. Um, I, I think that they could go to a database for me. If I say, robot, I have a case that involves, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of something uh, involving cybercrime. Uh, uh, somebody, well, recent, <laughs> no, too complicated. Uh, somebody hacked a bank account and uh, the amount hacked was uh, $500. It was in the state of Georgia. What's, is there a law about hacking a bank account online in the state of Georgia, do they have law? That's that's something I could entrust to a robot, perhaps, if the robot can go into a database for me. Yes, I mean, uh, these, these are going to be not uh, uh, big complex things that the robots will start addressing immediately. So it's going to be step-by-step -step approach. So first, it, in the beginning, it will take, you know, smaller, you know, role and smaller tasks like you just talked about. And then, you know, as it learns more, because it's just like teaching kids, you know, be, this, we are trying to teach uh, uh, machines how to do certain things. So it's going to take time before it's able to do all the complex tasks that uh, humans are thinking that they can do. But to be able to do that, to be able to have robots and artificial intelligence do all those complex uh, tasks that we are hoping that they would do someday or one day, what new institutions do you see that would be necessary to deal with the issues these kind of you know robotics and artificial intelligence will raise well i i see another challenge what does the what's the the role of the human being mm -hmm. if it, and especially in developing countries where people are just getting an opportunity to be middle class. Again, I'm back to India. But we have a huge middle class in India, the size of the whole US population. And what happens when the robots are brought in to replace them? Where do they go? So the economic benefits versus the, the labor issues, the replacement of the human being, What's the future of the human being? And when do we bring in the ethics people to tell us what is the impact of this automation? Yes, that is a topic now, of uh, discussion for a whole risk roundup. Uh, that, right. You know, what is going to be the uh, role of humans and where uh, will humans fit in and what, uh, what would happen when this machine workforce, you know, starts taking away job of human workforce. There are a lot of complex challenges and issues that will emerge, but let's stick to the legal and policy policy issues here. Okay. That will that will take up a whole hour of discussion. Absolutely. 
absolutely it's such, a, it's such an important topic that we want to you yeah. know address it uh, i have already addressed this on another risk roundup uh, uh, with the singularity university and uh, we have talked about all these issues that uh, you just raised so Good. there is there is a lot that needs to be thought about we cannot rush into um, mm. creating uh, this you know machine workforce without uh, understanding the impact it would have have on the human workforce so that those questions will need to be addressed very very seriously by and it, yeah and it will have to be decided country by country in terms of the country's stage of development yes very and so each country will have its own policy on how we're going to use the robots true that is very true each country will have to decide how they want to use artificial intelligence how they want to use machine intelligence and how much they want to implement for their industries and for their work processes and how they would manage the jobs that are lost and how they would uh, help the uh, <coughs> human workforce and retrain them so the, we, there are a lot of things that needs to be evaluated but let's talk about the drones now what kind of legal sure. questions you see drones presenting well we're seeing them already uh, countries are debating when it's legal to use a drone and the U I've seen cases in the US, Australia, UK about drones and when they can be used and where they can be used and what kind of law can be applied. Should it be local law? Should it be federal law, etc.? So this is evolving. Again, we don't see consensus in many of these evolving technology issues. But some countries are uh, adopting law because people may say, well, there's a privacy aspect here. And so the, the local government may say, you can't fly a drone within X feet of somebody's house or you can't use a drone for whatever. So we are seeing legislation being adopted, not consistent, not even within one country is it consistent. As you know, I, that that is uh, uh, that is where the complex challenges are. That each and every country is addressing all this emerging technology and its impact on law and policy in a silo manner, like you just you know said in the beginning. So that is a concern, and we will have to uh, collaborate, cooperate, and come up with a unified you know legal and uh, uh, law and legal aspects of all these emerging technologies and come up with you know global policies. So let's hope that you know the nations go there. But do you see these existing and emerging technology, um, irrespective from you know whichever technology we are talking about in cyberspace, geospace, and space? Do you see that it will trigger the breakdown in the rule of law in the coming years? Not at all. I think that we we are seeing adoption of new laws as we as we meet the challenges and what we saw recently was there was a case that was uh, in the US Supreme Court and there were there was a lot of um, uh, legal concern from Europe it was the Microsoft Ireland case in which data from uh, Microsoft was being uh, 
held in the cloud in Ireland. Ireland is a very strong privacy jurisdiction. And the US uh, wanted to gain access to the data. And oh, we had so many briefs from so many governments uh, in Europe and elsewhere and organizations and uh, corporations. And it went on and on and on and on. Finally, the US Supreme Court got to back away from it because the US adopted new legislation. And legis new legislation was a way to get out of the deadlock because both sides had compelling arguments. And I've seen those compelling arguments when I presented um, the training at the Interpol Cybercrime Unit in September in Singapore. I, I presented the pros and cons of something else, which is when law enforcement is investigating murders and, and very compelling issues, or there's, there's terrorism, and they need to violate privacy in order to investigate. So that's one compelling argument. On the other hand, the average person like me may be photographed in a crowd and without my knowledge or with my knowledge. Law enforcement doesn't have a search warrant and just does uh, the photography. And it's a very mixed kind of, it's, a, uh, it's got its pros and cons. Uh, and there's no right answer to this. I think that it depends on the situation, the facts of the situation, and we have to weigh and balance. But I'm talking about American law. I'm talking about American expectations of privacy. There are not the same expectations in other countries. Yes. And I think they, they may be using this kind of technology in China without any restraint. Uh, it's, it's fine to do in China. Yes. I saw it in smart cities projects in some places where everyone who lived in a government-owned apartment building was photographed, and that was okay under that country's law. So again, it's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Yes, yes very true. It is uh, uh, country by country, and uh, each uh, nation's uh, government and decision makers, they are uh, doing things where they feel comfortable and they want to you know control their population they want to control uh, the information flow and a lot of you know security issues that emerge so they are they are creating their own policies so let let's talk a little more about the communication and legal challenges because the free flow of information on internet enables very new forms of collaborations and governance uh, and it also introduces the, the uh, threats to intellectual property and privacy and that is one of the reasons why china is you know uh, very 
guarded on how the information flows from their country. Now, while the internet brings communities together, it also creates conflicts as we see time and time again. So what legal challenges do you see emerging as the computer code and connected computers and internet invokes a distinct sense of place with new possibilities and new norms? But it also introduces these methods of exquisite control by organized private and state interests, like we see in China, how they are have they have come up with that you know facial recognition and technology, and they're using it on their citizens, and how they have come up with that social credit you know system uh, in China that if you uh, behave good you know well, then you know you get extra points, and you are able to uh, have access to you know certain privileges that uh, not everyone would have. So. These are very complex, you know, challenges emerging. Well, again, it's it, it, it country by country. Yes. And, and they, that's why we haven't been able to achieve consensus in the Council of Europe uh, uh, Cybercrime Convention. Uh, Russia and China have not joined and have not signed and uh, they have, well, Russia has constantly objected saying that it would lose its sovereignty if it allowed police from other countries to enter its jurisdiction. It also complains that it wasn't part of the original drafting of the convention. So when, when I've attended the Council of Europe cybercrime meetings in Strasbourg at the European Parliament, Russia will attend, there'll be a, an interpreter from Russian to English, and they will object every time, but they do attend. Yes. So we, and the UN has tried to get consensus. And there, even within the UN, I've heard um, two different divisions that are totally independent of each other. And one is the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, Union, Union sorry. And I would say that India, again, you know, trying to be a third world country, a non-aligned country, whatever it says these days, but India and Russia and China uh, have tried to work with the ITU. But another component of the UN is the United, Nation, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And they operate completely separately. I was invited to a conference in Vienna a few months ago as an observer based on my uh, research institute activity. And when I tried to talk to them about any evolution within the UN of any consensus or any they've been attempting to have a global treaty and they said well ITU is a separate unit of the United Nations and so the office on drugs and crime is solely looking at cybercrime and that's one component of the big picture but there's no harmonization between offices units within the United Nations, things are so polarized from office to office, depending on what their um, mission is. Yes. So it's very hard to, um, 
get anywhere with this. The, the only convention, the only global convention we have is the Convention on Cybercrime, which many countries use as a model, but have not adopted. Because yeah. to, to ratify and join, your law has to look like what the Council of Europe um, legislation and and uh, resulting policy indicates, and some countries have some have ratified with exceptions, and and said no, we don't agree with these components, but we're going to ratify. Other countries uh, have not, and they keep struggling with how can they adopt domestic law yes. that's within their their notion of what should be. Yes, very true, very true. And yeah. now uh, we also see that this free speech to fake profiles in cyberspace, uh, they create very complex challenges. So how do you see courts handling these complex issues emerging because of these uh, cyber crimes and uh, uh, that we see because of the free speech and the fake profiles? Well, I'm not going to talk about fake news, okay. but I will talk about another emerging area that's very interesting and I'm watching it evolve. And that is cyber stalking. And uh, there's a new area of uh, cyber stalking and I'm seeing an activist group of lawyers in the United States talking about, how can I express it? How can I explain it? Um, strangers will post false information about a victim. Mm. Uh, for example, what I'm seeing, what I've just seen recently, it's coming, I think, from New York, but it may be coming from other states where there's state uh, lawsuits, where somebody posts online that a man is um, having an affair or he's uh, homosexual, but he's married. And Playboy just had an article that was a, a link to one of to the activist website that I've been seeing. But the question that sometimes arises is when do you have freedom of speech? When are you committing defamation or harassment? So there's sometimes there could be a fine line between a disgruntled former date. I think I saw a case where somebody had gone out on a date and the person, the other person didn't want to date them again. And all of a sudden something was posted. I don't know if it was on Facebook or where saying um, this, this woman is looking for, um, you know, sexual I contact. And the same was done to a homosexual. And he was a married man who was a homosexual. And people were being told that he was homosexual, told that he was looking for activity. And it ruined his life. So when is it freedom of speech? And it's a fine line. And I, I'm a little concerned about the First Amendment um, issues that may arise. I haven't seen the defenses. I haven't seen the cases yet. I, I haven't had the time, but I think this is a fine line problem that we may see. 
Yes, it is. So how do you think we should uh, regulate these kind of uh, digital information exchanges? Well, in looking at the evolution of the cybercrime convention, what I saw in some European countries was that they took existing law and they uh, said it was it could be applied online. So if I don't have the right to defame another person in a newspaper, I shouldn't be able to do that um, illegal act online. Very true. So do you see these regulations of digital interactions and connectivity keeping up? Because right now it's, uh, you know, open land for everyone. You know, anybody can put anything on Internet without, you know, having to worry about consequences. Then well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I'm also interested in seeing the evolution of something Facebook was doing because they were hiring people to look at the communications on Facebook and maybe to take down. Now, I saw something on LinkedIn recently. There's a person that I know who is definitely not telling the truth, someone I know. And LinkedIn apparently took it down, and I was very glad. I don't know how they determine who is legitimate and who is not. And I have seen hacks of LinkedIn over the years, and I have seen people that I suspect maybe hackers who are not legitimate. I've seen the same things on Facebook where I'm sent somebody's information and I immediately, my, my radar go up and I say, wait a minute, uh, this doesn't seem right. And what we've seen actually what's been identified is that people are using other people's photos and fake biographies to make contact with others. So I'm pretty cautious about who gets into my network it, and I have my criteria and I won't even allow my own cousin to be in my LinkedIn network because he's a real estate broker and I, you know, that's not my field. So you, I don't know how people make their own decisions, but I also say, wait a minute, is this someone I know personally or have I, have I met this person in a professional uh, setting? And how many of the people that I know are in this person's network? But I've seen people who just do not exercise caution. And I've told people LinkedIn is not the same as Facebook. Yes. Secondly, I've said Facebook is a place that's read by other people. It's not just your private circle. So we've seen instances in which lawyers in insurance cases have gotten evidence against a plaintiff. In other words, somebody says, I was injured at work. I, I'm disabled and I'm on and I'm suing the employer. And then they post to, to Facebook, I went skiing last week. 
and uh, had a great time, you know. But meanwhile, they're they're going to the insurance company's office on crutches with fake fake medical documentation. Yes. So lawyers can use what you post on Facebook, even though Facebook is for social purposes and LinkedIn is for professional purposes. Again, the law can step in. Yes. Yes, very true. Now, there is a, let's talk about the cyberspace regulations. It, it seems like there's a growing number of people who feel whether cyberspace should be regulated at all. Do you see that uh, law is no longer the most appropriate mode of digital regulation? And do you think that we should rely instead on blockchain-based agreements and smart contracts? Uh, to protect individuals and entities' rights online, because uh, there are there is a very you know intense debate going on between these uh, uh, technology people that let's just self-regulate you know internet. Yeah. Let's not have governments you know interfere with the regulation. What do you think? You know we should be doing. I think there's a place for the technology and for the law and regulation. Why? The challenges are evolving and no technology is 100% safe. And I think it still falls to the courts to get involved when there's, for example, a data breach. Huge companies have all kinds of software in place. They're not negligent. And yet somebody comes along who invents a better mousetrap. And that's happening because, as I said, the criminals have lots of money. And of course, the private sector software companies have huge amounts of money. And yet the criminals are looking for ways to get in there. So I think there has to be a collaboration and what concerns me is we're all on the good side, supposedly. Yes. But, but I've heard and read comments, uh, keep, keep the law people out. Or the law people say, you know, keep the tech people out. We don't know what they're saying. We don't understand. Keep them out. No, the, the law people, I don't know if they say that so often. But we, we need to be collaborators and to work on these problems together, look at the GDPR, for example, the new European regulation, legislation and regulations. And they have a fallback about companies or, or covered institutions that don't take the proper measures and they can be fined. Yes. yes. So we need, I'm sorry to say, we need sometimes to use punishment when entities are lax, don't take it seriously. And this is going to be a new bunch of regulation in addition to the cybercrime legislation and the um, other kinds of legislation that we mentioned. This is going to have an effect on how we use the the internet or whatever the next uh, kind of quantum computing or whatever the next technologies are. 
Very true. I mean, so you think that uh, uh, new laws, the legislators, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on them to create new laws and to new regulations. Do you think that uh, new laws should be the last resort and uh, that we should not be creating with every each and every new uh, emerging technology? We should not be just bombarding uh, the innovators and the consumers and everyone with uh, uh, new laws, you know, every single day? Do you, what, what do you think that uh, should we be very conservative in creating new laws or we should be very liberal in creating new laws? Well, let me tell you what I know about how they created the Council of Europe Cybercrime Convention. It took years, and I think there were 19 drafts altogether, and they kept meeting and trying to hammer it out. So it's it, it's, it takes a kind of evolution, but... What they did was they never defined cybercrime in the convention. Mm. And yeah. they talked about areas in which there could be criminal acts. So they, they couldn't do it. They had to make it broad enough so that the individual country could look at what its situation was. I was reviewing some reports recently and for example, ransomware was a problem in some countries, but not all countries last year. It was a big theme in some places, and in other places, they didn't have that experience. Yes. In, and again, uh, I'm not saying that any country is free from child pornography or trafficking online but the problems are different in different places yes they are they are very true so what are the emerging trends of cybercrime law that you are witnessing trends of law cybercrime law yes cyber law yeah well um I looked at U.S. Department of Justice's IC3 program uh, for 2017. They, they produce an internet crime report each year. And th they were talking about trends last year as business email compromise. I'll explain that in a minute because it was brought to me. Ransomware. Mm -hmm. Technical support fraud, which I'll explain in a minute, and an elder justice initiative mm. and extortion. Okay, so let me let me explain what they are. Those were trends last year. Now, this year's trends may be different. They may be the same. They may be different. The trends that I saw 10 years ago were different from the trends I see now. So each year we kind of have a theme. Okay, business email compromise. Company gets a contact by email or phone. Wire transfer money from your corporate account to this, this bank. Okay, so someone came to me. It's someone from the jewelry industry in New York. And someone had called his office. Fortunately... He's, he's a very 
uh, how can I say it nicely? He's he's very tight-fisted and doesn't let his staff touch any money. So his staff person called him and said, "I got I got a call from this person who spoke to you. Should I transfer? I forget how much money it was." And being as tight-fisted as he is, he said, of course not, and plus the fact it was a fraud. And this was a pattern that I was seeing and reading about last year. Uh, ransomware, I think people are pretty familiar with it. Technical support fraud. Uh, I have a friend who is an elderly person who's bedridden, living at home with a, care, a caregiver. And she was contacted by people, and she was suspicious. And this was going back a few years. And she said, um, should I give them access to my computer? Should I pay that? And I said, well, I don't know if this is a legitimate person or not, because the criminals were getting into it where you would give them your credit card information to check your computer security. And just yesterday, I was in touch with Norton, and they don't have technical people in Japan. I got a call that said, no caller ID. And I had to disclose information. I was very uncomfortable about it. But who, again, we're back to who do you trust? <laughs> but the technical support fraud was they were calling people and saying, well, let me into your computer and I will do work for you remotely. And just like if someone calls your house and says, uh, I'm selling the New York Times, you know, whatever, you want to know if they're legitimate or not. Uh, the Elder Justice Initiative is great because seniors are vulnerable. And there are some projects working with the seniors. But I've seen elderly lawyers. I know someone, a brilliant man, who teaches at two law schools in the Washington, D.C. area who didn't know how to check his own email. And I introduced him to YouTube a couple of years ago. And he was so thrilled to be able to watch C-SPAN. He didn't know that he could watch it online. Or he could see press conferences, and he was so thrilled. So the older cohort of people in most countries doesn't know how to use the technology to its fullest, but also doesn't know how to be safe. And that was a trend that the elderly were vulnerable. AARP was working with it. And there's a wonderful project in Brooklyn New York called OATS, O-A-T-S, and they've received foundation grants for their work in digital literacy for the elderly, and they're doing a great job of enabling people to know how to stay safe and also how to stay connected to society. Uh, extortion. We had the Ashley Madison case, and that was an adultery website, and there, there was extortion about not disclosing who was on the site. So these are some examples of the kinds of things that the Department of Justice is dealing with. But most recently, the election fraud situation. Really? And they've they've indicted people, um, I, people in Russia.
from Russia. Yes. There's been a group indicted recently. Yes, yes. So there's there's a lot. Now I got some statistics from I IC3. And from 2000 to 13, uh, 2013 to 2017, 1,420,555 1, total complaints were filed with them, representing $5.52 billion in total losses. So that's monetary loss. Okay. It's And then CCIPS, the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property um, uh, part of U.S. Department of Justice, handles intellectual property issues too, such as th theft of trade secrets yes. and cybercrime cases. Yes. And uh, what I've seen this year, I've seen more adult cyber stalking and I've seen actually former police who've been arrested and indicted for cyber stalking. So it's the use and abuse yes. of the technology is being picked up by US Department of Justice. Yes, yes. But states are also involved states yes. local police there's a, an awful lot going on yes very true and when the people in power you know abuse their power and uh, they do the cyber stalking then it's a cause of great concern because then who to turn to for protection so now th this is uh, such a broad topic and there are so many different uh, variables and aspects of cyber crime and cyber policy and cyber law that needs to be addressed but we are way past one hour and i'm sorry <laughs> no there is a, the, the, this topic is so interesting and there's so much to talk about so i i think uh, this is the last question uh, sure we will you know address uh, the rest of the points you know in the coming episodes but what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners as to the uh, your initiatives your books and uh, the projects that you're working on okay well, uh, I'm continuing as general editor of the three-volume, 3,000-page uh, Law Treatise Cybercrime and Security. And uh, there, there's just so much going on. There's so much policy and legislation. There are so many cases to follow in countries all over the world. I'm currently editing the update of the China chapter. We're also trying to produce, and I hope we will, trying to produce uh, work on cybersecurity insurance. This is an evolving field in not all countries, but some countries. So we're working on that, and there, there are contributing authors who are lawyers and, and uh, sometimes judges and professors from all over. So it's very exciting. It's continuing. Wonderful. And I'm also I'm I'm working on uh, well other other projects consulting uh, with uh, I've been asked by lawyers to help them with better digital literacy. So I'm working on something um, to help them. For example, what do you do with digital evidence when it's allowed in a jurisdiction? So how does the average bright lawyer 
deal with submitting digital evidence to a judge. Yes, very true. Wonderful. No, these are good initiatives. So thank you so much, Professor Rice. Of thank you. And for participating in this roundup today, we Thank appreciate you. your thoughtful insight on complex legal challenges of cyber crimes. And our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you shared today. And we thank you for helping this group raise awareness of this critical topic. Thank you very much. Wonderful. So there is a need for stringent laws that can provide unbreakable security to nations' information in cyberspace, geospace, and space. Risk group cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA and CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.